Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zachran, Assistant Editor of the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Ben Terrace, writer for the Washington Post, about his latest book, The Big Break, The Gamblers, Party Animals, and True Believers Trying to Win in Washington While It Loses Its Mind. From 2016 to 2020, a slew of books about the Trump administration were released. The Biden administration hasn't received the same treatment from publishers, but The Big Break is one of the few that provides insight into a post-Trump Washington. Who are the new power players in the wake of a fragmenting Washington consensus? Ben, thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Of course, you know th- this was a, a really fun book to read. I think uh, because you know it's a lot, a lot of great salacious details. You got, you have so many great quotes in here that would just make great headlines uh, for for you know myriad of articles. But before jumping into the book, I was wondering, do you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure. Uh, so I live in Washington D.C. I've lived here for over a decade, despite my wife uh, making me promise we'd only be here for a year when we first got here. Um, I'm not really, a. I never cared that much about politics. You know, I mean, I obviously paid attention to politics. I read the newspaper and I cared about, you know, elections, but it was never my, you know, my passion to, to cover it, um, professionally, but I got a job down here and then I got more jobs down here. And it turned out like the things I did care about writing about interesting people, writing about, um, you know, dramatic situations, funny situations, powerful moments, uh, important, uh, you know, things going on in, in American culture and society and politics all happen in, in Washington. So it's a very rich environment to to be a political profile writer or profile writer at all. Um, and now my job at the Washington Post is mostly to write political profiles. So I kind of fell into a, a good gig. How did the idea for this particular book first germinate in your mind? Well, originally, originally, honestly, it germinated with somebody else. Um, you know, uh, Mark Leibovich wrote the book This Town in, in 2013, which is this kind of phenom uh, that that was a profile of Washington in the Obama years. And it was such a hit that I think publishers were kind of looking for, for a book like that for a while. And so a publisher came to me a couple of times and asked me if I was interested in trying to write a book that was like This Town. But for now, and whatever you know, what time period that was, uh, and I was not interested in doing that. Um, first of all, Mark Leibovich is amazing, um, and trying to write something that would you know be held up against his—it's just I, I don't do the same exact kind of thing. But after um, Donald Trump's presidency, and when when Biden won the election, I was on paternity leave. My brain was all mushy. And the same publisher came and asked me if I might be interested in writing about Washington in this moment, in this next, you know, the upcoming moment, this so-called return to normalcy. And I, A, because I had a mushy brain from, you know, being on paternity leave and being up all night, um, and because I looked around and thought things are not going to go back to normal at all. I mean, how could, what, what even is normal at this point? I started to think that, okay, I might not write this town, but for, but for this moment, but I certainly could try to find characters that represented this new abnormal that we were going into 
and figure out a way to write about them and write about American politics that seemed interesting to me. So how did you go about choosing the subjects that end up featuring in the book, um, you know, particularly people like Sean McElwee, Matt Schlapp, and Leah Hunt Hendricks? Honestly, um, you know, I have a hard time, you know, being proud of my my work sometimes, right? Because it's it's hard. Re being a journalist is hard. And I read stuff that I wrote and I'm like, how I, I would have done that differently. I am very proud about <laughs> the characters I was able to find for this book. Washington is like filled with people who A, either want to be written about a lot and just aren't worthy of it, or B, don't want to be written about at all, uh, but would be great to write about or are maybe interesting, but not important. It's really hard to find people that you can spend time with that are actually interesting and you, you want to know what happens next. That doesn't mean you like them. You might want to see their downfall and also be at, at least connected to important stories that are happening. And so finding these characters was the hardest part of this book in a way. I had to cast this incredibly wide net. I probably have five or six main characters and another five characters that are sort of, you know, secondary characters in the book. But I probably had a list of 30 people that I was trying to, you know, bring into the book that I was spending time with that I have pages and pages of notes on that just didn't fit. And the hard part about writing this book is I was writing it, reporting it in real time. I didn't know what was going to happen at the end. I knew when my end, like my date that I had to turn it in would be, but I, I didn't know what was going to happen with the election. I didn't know what was going to happen with anybody. And so I found a lot of characters that were incredibly fascinating and interesting and dynamic, but didn't end up having a dramatic arc over the course of the year. And so one of the most difficult things I had to do was then take these people and just say, sorry, you're not in the book. And so for somebody like Sean, uh, I knew from the beginning he'd be an interesting character. This is Sean McAlee or, uh, you know, the, the former head of Data for Progress, a Democratic pollster, rising star, had a lot of attention, uh, you know, in the early Trump years as a as a, a lefty and then as kind of a moderate in the Biden years. I knew he was a dynamic and interesting character from the beginning because he was a rising star that was very quotable and had this kind of gravity well that it drew people in to his happy hours, to his poker nights. Just being around him, I, I could tell that he was an interesting character, but I didn't know that he was going to have this dramatic implosion at work, that he was going to have these scandals, that he was going to, this connection to Sam Bankman Freed that he had, which was interesting to me because it was a lot of money. I didn't realize that it would also be interesting to me because of what would happen with Sam Bankman Freed. And so part of writing a book like this is just putting yourself in position to be around people in case crazy things happen, and then focusing on those people. The part that I was just most interested by was just this, this looking at this new generation of Washington influencers and kind of thinking about how they compare to an older generation of Washington influencers like Larry Summers, for example. Um, and, you know, even just comparing, you know, the, the new crop of people, Sean McElwee, uh, Gabe Bankman-Fried, obviously, they, uh, as you as you point out, they may not uh, have the future in Washington that they dreamed of. Uh, but people like Ryan Grimm, like, how would you compare these younger, uh, newer Washington influencers to the people that might have been profiled in this town? You know, in some ways, Washington just repeats, right? Like, the, looking at Sean... Uh, in a lot of ways, he's not that different than someone like Frank Luntz, who I also write about in the book. Um, you know, somebody who feels like they're good with words and they're good at branding and they're good at reading the the room, so to speak, whether that's polling or focus groups or just having a gut feel for where the party is going and where the American public is going. 
Sometimes it's overblown. Sometimes they actually do have a good feel. Building a brand in Washington is like as old as Washington itself. So in some ways, a lot of these people are just doing the same thing that everyone has always done using slightly different tools, um, using Twitter instead of talk radio or using, um, you know, quick um, polls instead of using, you know, phone phone banking polls that take months to, to, to do. And so in a lot of ways, I, I feel like what I was seeing was um, the same people, but made in this specifically post-Trump moment where uh, building a brand was louder than ever and uh, more important than ever. And social media presence was important to, to, to people, but it also is more combustible than ever, right? I mean, Donald Trump got to be president because of who he is, but he also might be going to jail for that exact exact same reason. And so a lot of people who took this lesson of, okay, I should sort of be like Trump, not necessarily um, believing in the same things as him, but presenting myself, being a little more scandalous, being a little bit, you know, saying the quiet part out loud. People always like to talk about how that happens more in Washington. That can get you pretty far, but it also might lead to a very dramatic downfall, which is what I feel like I saw with a lot of the characters in the book. So for those who are unfamiliar, would you mind walking through the kind of arc, uh, the rise and fall of Sean McElwee's story? Yeah. Um, so the reason I was interested in him at first is because he he, he did this thing that, that is common in Washington. He just happened to do it faster than anyone else, which is this ideological malleability where, you know, you change who you are to fit a moment. And so he so he was a young guy. I mean, he's under he, he's just over 30 now, but he was under 30 when I when I started spending time with him. And um he grew up in a conservative household, but his way of you know rebelling against his conservative family was to be a libertarian. So he started out as a libertarian, uh, interned at Reason Magazine and a Fox Business Channel. Um, then he became a hardcore uh, kind of Bernie bro type um, democratic socialist, uh, became famous for uh, helping popularize the term abolish ICE, um, you know, to get rid of, uh, you know, the the part of the, the Trump administration that was kind of doing some of the, the, the worst human abuses of the, you know, the, the family separation, basically. He was out there saying abolish ICE, uh, making it popular, early adopter of AOC, hosting uh, happy hours for, um, you know, people in the dirtbag left and, and democratic socialists. He would wear Bernie Sanders hats and Karl Marx shirts. He was like this kind of larger than life figure on the left. Uh, he very quickly kind of tacked to the center, at least tactically, uh, in the Biden years, once once Joe Biden became president, and that's where the power was, that's where the influence was, he um, sort of became famous for like pushing against the things that he once pushed for. No longer was he the guy who would say abolish ICE. He was the guy out there saying, stop saying defund the police. We, we no longer need to move Overton's window. He liked to talk about Overton's window, kind of uh, the range of, of acceptable legislation. Um, and he wanted to now walk through Overton's door. That's what he'd like to say, because now Democrats were in power. You have a different a different goal. It's no longer to just be in opposition to things. It's to actually implement things. And so he started this organization, Data for Progress, uh, in the Trump years. And in the Biden years, it became a very uh, influential Democratic um, polling firm, think tank. Uh, and he was getting big jobs with like John Fetterman's campaign. And his polls were getting tweeted out by the White House. And so I was spending time with him for these reasons, because he was ideologically malleable and, and, and making it work in Washington. Um, I found very quickly that he was the kind of guy that could easily combust. I didn't know what happened as quickly as it did, but I would go to his poker nights and the biggest bets he was making was not on poker, but on 
politics. He was betting on congressional races and presidential races and legislation. And so just to watch this guy in action was to be like, this is what the this is what insiders are doing these days. It was very strange for me to see and, you know, frankly, captivating. And like just couldn't believe the stuff that he would say in front of a reporter. And do you think it was because he was foolish or that he just didn't think that he would get caught or maybe he just believed that he wasn't doing anything wrong? I think it's sort of, you know, a little Trumpy, right? If you do your scandalous thing out in the open, it's harder for people to see it as a scandal. And so he was completely open about his betting. I mean, he didn't go to like the Washington Post and, and announce like, by the way, I just made a bet against my client. But he talked about it all around town. He encouraged his staff to bet. He would Venmo them money uh, that he would call DFP stimmies, like data for progress stimulus uh, uh, payments to encourage his staff to use them on, on the betting website, predict it. Um, you know, he would end conference calls with other organizations by calling out for people to make bets with him on, on, on elections. He was very open about it. And he had a, a theory for why it was good and not bad. He said it was like a heuristics um, lesson for him. He had a tactile feel for when he was right and when he was wrong. He had skin in the game. If he bet $1,000 on something and, and lost that money, then he would forever remember that mistake and maybe he could learn from it. People in politics, would you'd like them to feel like they have skin in the game anyway, right? Like there's legislation that can pass and not pass or Supreme Court justices that can be appointed or not appointed. And, and these things all affect people's lives based on how good you are at getting people elected or, or getting legislation to pass. Um, but he believed that, you know, there was value in this. And that ultimately was his worst bet, right? Is that this was making him better at his job when ultimately it helped cost him his job. And now with everything that's that's happened, him sort of, you know, losing losing his job, um, do you think that his future in politics is over or is he the type of person that will eventually find his way back into the fold? Washington is very forgiving um, of people's failures. Uh, I once wrote a story about a guy who was historically wrong as a pollster. He got the Eric Cantor race wrong by like 40 points or something. And I wrote an article that was like, how, how wrong do you have to be to never get a job in Washington again? And the answer was basically like, it's impossible to ever be that wrong. Somebody compared being a pollster at that level to being an NBA coach. It's like, once you get to be an NBA coach, even if you have a horrible season, you'll probably find another job as an NBA coach somewhere down the line. You've made it to this level. You've proven to at least somebody that you are capable enough to have gotten the job once, you might be able to get it again. So the place is forgiving of uh, of screw-ups. Uh, so I would not be surprised if Sean finds some sort of second story. But, but this is a big one, right? It wasn't one thing that led to his downfall. It was not just that he bet on politics. It was also with connection to Sam Bankman-Fried. And, you know, that's a, t that's, a tough, that's a tough pill to swallow these days. It was also the fact that his staff, um, you know, felt mistreated by him. Um, there's a lot to his story that led to him being, you know, defenestrated from his own polling organization, but he's also a young guy with talent that got himself there one time. I would not be altogether surprised to see him find a way back. And what do you make of someone else that's sort of similar to him? Uh, David Shore, uh, David Shore also got into some trouble a couple of years ago. Um, not the same, same type, of course, uh, very different, uh, but, you know, what, what do you see about his kind of rising star uh, as a Democratic uh, Party pollster? Shore and, and Sean, I think Shore told me that Sean was one of his best friends. Like these guys, like they had similar worldviews. They were always sort of competing with each other for attention, 
for a while, Shore was winning the attention wars because uh, popularism was, you know, associated with him. And that became a very popular concept. You know, Sean was always looking for some some term that he could compete with it for a while he wanted to say doerism or something i can't remember he was always looking for some 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 term of art that that could help him compete with shore but i think they kind of are cut from the same cloth in a lot of ways which is um you know they're smart and they uh know more about how to read through data than somebody like i do but more important than that they, they they're good showmen about it they knew how to like get people to listen to, to what they had to say um but the problem with being somebody who uh gives off the air of always being right is that when you're really wrong <laughs> you look like an idiot right i mean it's hard to say sean showed me his bet sheet before election night i think democrats are going to lose the house by this much i think democrats are going to lose the senate by this much i think fetterman is fucked he said i'm not allowed to say that on this podcast i think fetterman is screwed um and then you know i have his spreadsheet and then when he's wrong about all these things it's kind of hard to to convince somebody that you are this brilliant prognosticator because you've literally put your money where your mouth is and you are wrong. And so that's the problem with being a little too smart is sometimes you're revealed to be not, not nearly as smart as you, you say you are. I mean, yeah, that, that is, you know, something I find fascinating. You know, you can watch uh, interviews with like, I was watching an interview with uh, Stanley Druckenmiller, who's like a, you know, an investor who worked for Soros. He's like 80 and they're asking him his predictions about the stock market. And he's like, I don't do that. Like, I have no idea. He says, I'll, I'll make it, I'll tell you what I think. But he said, and then he'll talk about that 17 different times that he's been wrong. So I think like, yeah, it's definitely a young, a, a young person's curse. They get, they predict, you know, maybe they predict Trump or maybe they predict something and then they think they got the golden touch. Well, you know, um, the thing in Washington is oftentimes people are not uh, punished for being wrong. And people, I mean, how many pundits have you seen on TV go and say, oh, the red wave's coming and then it doesn't come. And then you see them on TV two years later, right before another election saying what's going to happen. People have the short-term memories, I guess. I don't, I don't know what it is, but maybe there's like a shameless gene that people have in Washington that, that allow them to be successful. Because if I went on TV and predicted something and was that wrong, I would probably like hide under the covers for the next four years and hope no, nobody ever asked me anything again. And yet there are people who go there and they make a prediction and the next day they're completely wrong. And they're like, whoops, guess I was wrong about that one. It's like, well, then what, what's the point of this? And, and there's also an ability that some of these folks have to spin their them being wrong and to show ways in which they were right. You know, I walked around with Sean after the election and he admitted some of his mistakes, sure, but he could he could always find something he could pull out. Well, we were wrong about the, the overall picture, but we were right about this small thing and that small thing and this small thing. And I mean, I didn't find it convincing because if you say something's going to happen with the House of Representatives and it doesn't, it doesn't really matter if you were right about, you know, overall turnout in the country or whatever. Um, but I think investors might be convinced um, to keep giving money if they can see, all right, well, he got this and this right, which is better than nothing. And, you know, on the other side of the spectrum, looking at the some of the conservatives that you profile, like Matt Schlapp and, you know, even Stephen Miller, uh, you know, how are they navigating this uh, post-Trump world? Uh, well, I mean, the thing about this world is it's not like fully post-Trump, right? So uh, even though it, it has the vibe of a post-Trump world, because he's not literally here in Washington, his presence is is so felt in, in all things. And so I think that a lot of these folks are basically operating as if he's still president, um, not because they be believe he's in the White House, but because if they act like they think he's president and they treat him like president, if he becomes president again, 
they get to benefit from this. I mean, this book is about gamblers to a degree, right? Both the gambling that Sean does literally, but also the bets that people are making professionally. And I think a lot of people are making the bet that the best thing I can do for my own bottom dollar and maybe for things I believe in, who knows, it's probably secondary for a lot of folks, but the best thing I can do for my own influence and my own ability to live in the largest house on Mansion Drive, like the Schlapps do, is to continue betting on the guy that I think has the best chance of being the leader. And right now, I mean, the best chance is with Donald Trump, right? I mean, again, I would not predict it because literally anything could happen. He could go to jail. He could win from jail. I mean, I don't know. Um, so I wouldn't make a prediction, but I can see why people are making making that bet if that's if that's how you make a living in Washington. So for these types of gamblers that you profile, is there something that you think that they share that just sets them apart from, you know, the other strivers in DC? Like what what makes these people, you know, particularly uh, effective and also maybe, uh, you know, a little a little volatile? I mean, part of it is shamelessness, right? It's It's the ability to overlook things that other people couldn't overlook. I mean, the Schlapps are a good example of this. They, in 2016, when the Access Hollywood tape broke, uh, Matt and his wife, Mercedes Schlapp, they have five daughters. They drove out to their home in uh, their, you know, their country home, their farm home that they call Victory Farms, I believe. And they had to decide whether they wanted to continue supporting this guy who was on tape talking about sexually harassing women, sexually assaulting women. Um, and they decided ultimately, yeah, they'd continue to support him. And part of the reason was because they thought that, you know, in a binary, Donald Trump is better than Hillary Clinton. Uh, but the other part was like, he'd certainly be better for them. And so they continued to be vocal supporters of Trump despite this when a lot of other people disappeared. They they tried to, you know, hide under a rock and, and wait for the next election and pretend that they never supported Donald Trump to begin with, right? You saw a lot of that in those days after Access Hollywood. But because they were early supporters who continued to be loyal even after that, they got to become influential players in Trump's Washington. And I think you lose a lot um, by giving up your, you know, your ethics and your morals and, and and that kind of thing. But financially, you can gain a lot. Part, part of what I find really interesting about this book and just your approach to Washington in general uh, is how much you focus on the personalities uh, as opposed to, you know, some of, you know, the more ideological battlegrounds or policies. And I was wondering, you know, what, what, if there's any sort of a advantage or maybe a, a different opinion that you feel like uh, you bring to the table with this uh, unique approach to DC. I just think that, that people like, are people, right? And so much of this stuff is actually based on pettiness and personalities and, you know, squabbles with your friends. I mean, like this is called the, the big break because it's about this big break that the country went through and also about the big breaks that everyone was searching for for themselves, you know, trying to catch their big break. But it's also just these big breaks only happen because of like a million little ones. And I, I think that a lot of people, um, well, there's a case in this book about Matt Schlapp's right-hand man, his name's Ian Walters. And for a while he started, you know, he was a supporter of Donald Trump and ideologically he, you know, maintained his kind of MAGA cred for a while, even when he started to think this is grosser than I'd like. And it wasn't until he had this kind of personal drama with his boss and closest friend, one of his closest friends, Matt Schlapp, he wanted Matt to be the godfather to one of his children. It wasn't until they had like personal beef that he was able to have a political, uh, I don't know, awakening, I guess, or able to really fully break from Donald Trump. And that to me is like the story of, of Washington and people. It's There's a lot of people who have ideological beliefs and they 
could write white papers about what they really believe in. And then they go and they work for an awful guy because that's what you do in Washington. But then if that awful guy starts to make fun of you and you start hating working there, then maybe you leave and you start talking about how awfully he is. Frank Luntz is another great example. He told me that you know Donald Trump nearly killed him, that he had a stroke because he hated Donald Trump so much. But before that happened, he tried to work with Donald Trump, went to the White House, tried to encourage President Trump to stop saying build the wall and to say build the barrier because he thought it would be less political. Donald Trump rightfully laughed at that ridiculous idea, made fun of Frank Luntz. And I, I think partly just because he felt like he was being made fun of, he never goes and works for him and then starts to hate him so much that he tries to remove himself from this party or remove Donald Trump as the head of the party. And it's like, that's because people are people and they're driven often by like the most ridiculous little personal grievances and gripes, not the biggest ideological um, you know, belief system, which is not to say that they don't have these belief systems and they're not important to them. It's just sometimes personality uh, can be as motivating a factor as anything else. So for you, you know, with all of the people that you spoke with and that you covered um, in the book, is there anyone that you see as, you know, maybe representing uh, either, you know, the future in some ways of of DC's interests and the Democratic Party, and then the future of DC's interests in the Republican Party? Are there are there sort of two people that maybe stand out for you? And it's, if it's more than two or less than two, then that's interesting as well. Well, I don't I don't know if the if if these people represent the future or not. It's, again, it's sort of like making a prediction, and it'd be hard to know. But I'll, I'll say that one of the characters on the left that I was really interested in in spending time with was this guy Jamarcus Perley. Uh, in a way, he definitely won't represent himself the future of the party because he's no longer even in D.C. He was a Hill staffer that worked for Dianne Feinstein and was fired. And uh, in an act of protest, he eats a bunch of psilocybin mushrooms and breaks into her office and smokes a joint at her desk and hopes that he can film this video that people will watch and they want to come talk to him and he can explain uh, you know, the senator's mental uh, you know, faculties are dimming, and they, here's why she's no longer a good representation of the party. He was hoping that he could kind of kind of force a conversation, and it never happened. Um, the video kind of just fell flat. Uh, mainstream news almost kind of ignored it because it was a complicated and weird story. But in, in writing about him, I got to spend time with um, a part of, of Washington that's almost never covered in books like this, the Hill staffers. Um, the kind of underappreciated, overworked people. Um, I talked to this guy behind an account called Dear White Staffers, which uh, anonymously helps kind of call attention to the plight of the of of people working on the Hill. I talked to a um, a journalist who says that he covered the subaltern of Washington, covered the kind of the people without the power. And in spending time with them and in spending time with these Hill staffers, like I kind of hope. That the future lies more there than it does with the the brand builders and the um you know the political consultants who are basically just new versions of the same thing you've always seen because Washington does attract thousands of people who are only coming here because they want to do good stuff right I mean you might differ about what counts as good and what doesn't but they're coming here because they they care. Uh, Timothy Noah, who writes for the, the New Republic, had a great piece of this once, and he, he dubbed them the ask nots, like, you know, ask not what your country will do for you. And that's mostly what Washington is made of. And so I think that kind of regardless of these figures that, that you see as the most prominent um, person that's representative of a party, 
I think Washington will still be defined by those other people uh, for, for those willing to kind of look beyond the headlines. So in the wake of this uh, book coming out, you know, what are you working on now? Are there, is there any particular beat that you're following? So I'm, I'm getting back to uh, writing profiles in the, in the Washington Post feature section. Uh, one of the, I, I mentioned earlier that um, one of the things I had to do for the book was kind of cut characters, right? And uh, one of them I just profiled in the post. I got, was able to use that material because the problem for him in the book was he didn't really have anything happen. He was just an interesting guy with a crazy backstory. And then he was in the, his boss was in the news recently and I was able to use it. And that's the story of this guy named Morgan Murphy, who was Tommy Tuberville's national security advisor. And I was interested in this guy because he was a three piece suit wearing raconteur who got his start working for Graydon Carter at Vanity Fair and became a food critic, had his own line of bacon, just a really weird dude to end up working as a national security advisor for a senator who was also a former football coach, right? So it's just a, a weird uh, kind of new Washington vibe. And I profiled him because Tommy Tuberville is still, as we speak on this podcast, holding up um, nominations at the Pentagon for uh, generals and flag officers. And this guy, Morgan, as his advisor, was helping advise this, this cause. And so I'm still you know, writing the same kinds of stories that are in this book that I wrote before this book about the people kind of behind the people. And sometimes I'll, you know, I profile Tommy Tuberville too, like sometimes the principles, but really I'm trying to, I'm still trying to figure out like how the hell this place works and, um, you know, who are the people that are both the most interesting people who are part of the biggest stories. Well, Ben, before I, uh, I, I sign off and, uh, and thank you for, for your time. Uh, I just want to implore you to write a screenplay or something like that, because I feel like, uh, you know, with the characters that you got here, you could really do some interesting satire. Yeah, um, I mean, if you if you know anybody in the business, uh, hook me up. <laughs> yeah, well, well, yeah, let, yeah. Let me let me just check my uh, <laughs> my Rolodex. Sure. Uh, yeah, if anyone's listening to this and has a movie studio, you should finance uh, the Big Break. I think it will be uh, you know the summer's next hit. So <laughs> thank uh, you. Yeah, thanks so much, Ben. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for the time.